Welcome to the Newson Health Menopause Podcast. I'm Dr. Louise Newson, a GP and menopause specialist, and I run the Newson Health Menopause and Wellbeing Centre here in Stratford-upon-Avon. Today I'm very excited and delighted to introduce to you Dr. Hannah Short, who is a GP and menopause specialist who works near Cambridge. And I first met Hannah a few years ago on an International Menopause Society meeting, and we've been closely associated since that time. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you. Today, um, obviously, I spend a lot of time talking about the menopause and a significant amount of time talking about the perimenopause, which a lot of you know is the time before the menopause, so before periods stop when menopausal symptoms start. But actually, a lot of women have hormone imbalances before the perimenopause that worsen during the perimenopause, which is called uh, PMS or premenstrual syndrome, or some people know it as PMT, and there's also PMDD. So there's lots of initials, and lots of women actually experience it but have never heard or spoken about it or even received any treatment. So I thought this podcast would be really useful to dig into Hannah's brain and access her knowledge about PMS, which is something that she knows a lot about, but there's still plenty more that we are discovering all the time. So before we get started on that, Hannah, could you just say a little bit about you and why, how you've come into being a menopause specialist and with a special interest of PMS? I mean, I've always been interested in women's health and hormonal health and also mental health. And before I trained as a GP, I was actually training in psychiatry um, and then switched my training to go back to do general practice training. I've also um, had personal experience of female hormonal health issues, including severe PMS. And I also had endometriosis and together that resulted in an early menopause because I had my uh, hysterectomy and my ovaries removed when I was 35, having gone through various different treatments over the years. um, And sadly, none of them had kind of given me the quality of life that I, I really needed. So that was the driver for kind of doing a bit more training in in menopause. I mean, one thing I realised when I became surgically menopause at the age of 35 is that we don't look after menopausal women well Mm -hmm. as a general rule um, in the medical community. And if it's bad for women of natural menopausal age, it's particularly bad for those of us who have been plunged into Mm -hmm. surgical menopause and for those of us who have a premature menopause below the age of 40. And so that's kind of, I suppose, where my passion comes from. So menopause is obviously a whole huge subject, (laughs) as we all know. And again, surgical menopause and and menopause in those with a history of of PMS or or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is the severe form. um, Again, it is a whole that we could spend an hour, two hours, three hours Mm. probably talking about that. But yeah, premenstrual disorders, it's a whole spectrum of different disorders ranging from quite mild symptoms to quite severe symptoms. And it's something I suppose that fascinates me the more I learn about it. I think Mm. even before my surgery, I didn't really know much about it. I just knew that I felt particularly awful. (laughs) That's first put saying things a bit mildly, really, but I felt horrendous before my periods Mm. and I knew it was cyclical and that I would tend to feel slightly better when my periods arrived. 
but I I didn't really have much understanding about why that was happening or why I wasn't responding to treatment. And over the years, I suppose I've been learning more and more just through research and through seeing patients in clinic. Mm. So clearly, as women, we have hormones that are in our bodies and they work to regulate our periods and for our, our monthly cycles, but also help during pregnancy. But could you just explain what the hormones are and how they change throughout the month? Okay, yeah, so as with the two primary hormones in the menstrual cycle, estrogen and progesterone, estrogen starts to rise just after your kind of period and peaks around two weeks in most women after their period. And that's around ovulation. And then it starts to drop off and is very low just before you have your um, the period starts. And progesterone, it also kind of drops just to at that time as well, although it's often higher in the luteal phase to the, the, the last two weeks of the menstrual mm. cycle. And that's really important, isn't it? Because certainly when I was doing biology at school and actually even in university, you learn a lot about hormones and how important they are for the lining of the womb and development of the egg that gets released during ovulation. But we don't really realise, or I certainly didn't realise as much, how important these hormones are all around our body, aren't they? So they affect probably every cell in our body, but the effect on our brains of oestrogen especially, but also progesterone, are really important, aren't they? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think obviously you spend your time and I see spend our time seeing women who are hugely affected by the effects of hormones on our brains and the rest of our bodies. And I think, you know, we have hormone receptors or certainly Eastern receptors throughout the body in our brain, in our lungs, in our heart and vagina, mm. in the bone. But progesterone is there as well and can have a huge effect, especially on kind of mental health as, as well as some of the physical symptoms mm. that you obviously see around perimenopause and menopause. But there can be physical symptoms um, just before period as well and I think people don't realize do they I think um, a lot of people just maybe the day before their period feel very low very flat less energy but increasingly when I talk to people in my clinic they tell me from 10-20 years maybe they've had four or five days of the month classically before their period where they feel dreadful and some have been experiencing even night sweats and um, hot flushes and joint pains as well but they've never put that together with their hormones but they can reduce so much can't they that they can effectively cause menopausal symptoms. Yeah I mean so there will be symptoms of a temporary kind of oestrogen deficiency Mm. and so that can certainly cause those symptoms that you mentioned so stuff like the hot flushes and the night sweats particularly and head aches that can be another one for people who have hormone sensitive migraines yeah but pms is incredibly complex and it's not just about the dropping off of estrogen but that certainly does contribute to symptoms so how do you diagnose pms is there a quick blood test that people can do or what how would you diagnose pms in your patients no i mean there are There's no blood test really that's going to be helpful in diagnosing PMS. And PMS or premenstrual syndrome, as I think I said briefly at the beginning, is a whole spectrum of disorders. And there's quite a lot of frustration around, I suppose, in medical community and also, I suppose, in the general population about how we diagnose PMS or the severe form, so premenstrual dysphoric disorder. I mean, essentially, the more severe end of the the spectrum, premenstrual dysphoric disorder is an abnormal response to normal hormonal fluctuations. So checking your hormone levels is not going to be helpful because, to be honest, they're generally normal in women with PMS Mm. or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. That's not really the issue. It's normally the brain's response to those changing levels. Mm. And this is when it can kind of get quite complex. 
I mean, in terms of diagnosis, it's tricky because diagnostic criteria vary hugely and there isn't a big general consensus. So because PMS, PMDD kind of spans across both gynaecology, really, and psychiatry, the different disciplines have their different ways of diagnosing. Mm. So PMDD, um, the most severe form of premenstrual disorder, is actually diagnosed according to an American Psychiatric Association definition, which is really quite strict. Women have to have five out of 11 particular symptoms, one of which has to be a particular mood-related symptom. One has to be from another behaviour-related symptom. But the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, again, have a different criteria. The World Health Organization diagnoses or talks about diagnosis something called premenstrual tension syndrome. And that basically about 80% of women could fall into that. But I don't think 80% mm. of women would say that they have a clinically significant premenstrual disorder. Yes. So it, it is quite tricky. I mean, in the UK, we have guidelines put out by the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists called the Green Top Guidelines for Premenstrual mm. Syndrome. And what they do is they diagnose or kind of define five different variants of, of premenstrual syndrome. So there's mild form, which I think quite a lot of women could relate to because a lot of people will notice that you know some changes maybe slightly uncomfortable changes in terms of breast tenderness maybe feeling a little bit low before their period so that'd be like a mild premenstrual disorder then there's core premenstrual disorder or premenstrual dysphoric disorder where there's significant disruption to quality of life and very significant symptoms where people can't function particularly you know well at all may not be able to go to work may have rows with their their partner quit their job you know and some women become mm. suicidal I think a third of women with a diagnosis of PMDD have attempted suicide which is really quite a shock. I mean that's that's huge isn't it yeah. I mean we don't know the true incidence do we of PMDD because it's probably underdiagnosed. well is that, and I think yeah that this is the problem I think because there is no worldwide consensus it's hard and this is the frustration so the PMDD aspect I think a lot of people with severe symptoms want to kind of latch on to in a way because they think PMS just doesn't sound serious enough and that it, mm, and mm. because there's lots of general symptoms and they just think their symptoms won't be taken seriously enough but not everybody with severe premenstrual symptoms fulfills the DSM-5 criteria of PMDD mm. um, this is where I think I prefer using the Royal College's guidelines because I say they have these mm. five different variants and there's also one with premenstrual syndromes when you have no period so if you've had a hysterectomy but your ovaries are in mm. place still there endometrial ablation um, if you've had heavy menstrual yes. bleeding or if you've got the marina coil in for example yeah. and you're not bleeding but you could still have symptoms without having a period yeah. then there's premenstrual exacerbation which is worsening of an underlying disorder so depression or it could be epilepsy or anxiety mm. and then there's progestogen induced premenstrual disorder which I don't think is typically pre actually really a premenstrual disorder because it's more just the response to progestogens that are in mm. hormonal therapy. I mean, as far as I'm concerned as a clinician, if something is happening in the last two weeks of your menstrual cycle and is causing significant disruption to your life because you're having such significant symptoms, and these are primarily going to be mood-related symptoms, so anxiety, irritability, very low mood, lacking mm. concentration, brain fog, coupled with maybe some physical symptoms like the breast tenderness and joint pain. 
that I think enough for me to think this is a significant premenstrual disorder and you need help. Absolutely. And I think that's really important, isn't it? And I think this is why it's so important, and I'm sure you do the same, is to ask women to put down their symptoms in the, almost in their diaries, but actually record. And it's really useful even over a three-month period, isn't it? So people can assess, because we're all busy and our days often merge into one. And sometimes you think, oh, I'm in a bad mood because I've had a bad day at work or my children have been shouting at me or I haven't had much sleep. And we always blame something else, don't we? But it's only when you look down at a history or a diary and you see, actually, every two weeks these symptoms came. And then a lot of women tell me that after their period, they feel on top of the world they feel brilliant and then it's like anything when you're happy you forget about how sad you are because you so lovely to feel better again and then you have this dip so it's very important isn't it even if people feel those symptoms are really trivial they're still affecting them and if they're affecting them then they need to consider treatment exactly you agree no I think yeah I, I kind of went off on a bit of a ramble about the different types because I, I really want people to understand that there mm. that it is a spectrum of disorders and yes. you don't have to necessarily have a label really even to get mm. help but yeah it, it's really helpful and what you do need for a diagnosis and to get the right treatment is to track your symptoms for at least two to three months and you can mm. do that via an app so there's one called mm. me versus pmdd things like clue there's pre-mentrix there are lots of them out there or you can download a printable tracker from there's yes. the naps website pms.org.uk or iapmd.org they've got printable trackers which personally as a doctor I prefer to see because you get a nice graphical representation and you can see the fluctuations and in, in the symptoms and it's yeah it's not good like you say to kind of necessarily look back I mean even though I think you don't want to patronise women and say, oh, well, you don't know that this is what's going on until you've tracked the symptoms. But actually, our memories, we can't really rely on them properly if we're trying to sort out a diagnosis. Yeah. And as you say, you forget the awful times when you're feeling better mm. and kind of vice versa. So, But I think, I mean, I've also seen a lot of women in my clinic who are perimenopausal because clearly my clinic's all about the menopause and perimenopause who have had symptoms for quite a long time and they know they're their hormones a lot of women are quite intuitive aren't they and we're quite tuned into our hormones and a lot of women have said but I know it's my hormones and actually if a woman's telling me that I completely believe her and trust her because women tend to know they have this sort of sixth sense almost sometimes with their hormones and so there's not a blood test there's a lot of women who um, especially now you can send off and do a finger prick and have your own hormone Mm -hmm. blood test done so a lot of women say to me well my blood tests are normal my hormone levels are normal it can't be my hormones and clearly you know like you've so rightly explain that hormone levels change all the time don't they and we all work on different normal hormone levels as well so what makes me happy with my certain estradiol level might make you feel very differently no one knows do they what's the right level for them but also because they fluctuate so much a blood test is very unreliable so a doctor might do a blood test to exclude other causes of tiredness for example to make sure a woman's not anemic or have an underactive thyroid but they shouldn't be diagnosing on um, doing estrogen levels should they no and I think that's one of the frustrating things I see that people are told well your hormone levels are normal therefore this isn't a Mm. hormonal issue and I think it's a fundamental Mm. lack of understanding about premenstrual disorders and hormonal health and, and mental health as well I 
Yeah, I mean, I think PMS really or and PMDD should be defined as a psychoneuroendocrine disorder because mm. it's the interaction with you know the brain, the nervous system, and the hormonal system yeah. and the psyche. They're so closely related, aren't they? I mean, even if you think back of just being nervous for an exam and having butterflies in your stomach, and then having a increased heart rate, and then feeling with a dry mouth and feeling worried. All those systems are being activated, aren't they? Absolutely. And the hormones have such a huge importance for our brains. And that's why I think it's so interesting you having done a bit of psychiatry, your general practice and your menopause and hormone health. It all interlinks, whereas sadly in medicine, we're very much taught to be in systems, aren't we? And, you know, it's either a gynecological problem or it's a respiratory problem. And it shouldn't be because it's the whole person that we need to look at. So if you've seen someone who who you think might have PMS or PMDD, what's the treatment? Because there are different treatments, aren't there, that are available? Well, this is where it can come in quite helpful with the tracking as well, because it, you can then mm. tell what kind of premenstrual disorder you may be suffering from. But as I said, I don't think having a label should be a barrier or a formal diagnosis to getting treatment. And often I see women and we don't want to wait three months to start treatment. So I think that's kind of important to say. And again, the guidelines are quite helpful and they're there for doctors. They're there for women to look at before they go to the doctor to kind of understand what may be offered. And the treatment guidelines, again, vary from country to everything else. And I suppose what I do very much depends on the individual. If the symptoms are mild, um, sometimes lifestyle advice can make a Mm. big difference. So, you know, making sure you eat well, you know, like having plenty of kind of whole plant foods in your diet, having a fibre rich diet, complex carbohydrates are really important. I mean, women who kind of have quite restrictive diets or kind of doing the low carb thing, they tend to have more of a problem in terms around around that time. If Mm. that can sometimes worsen these symptoms, and that might well be to do with gut health, which is is implicated in in hormonal health and brain health Mm. and the health of the gut microbiota. So the microorganisms that live in our guts. And I think you probably talked about that with some people on your podcast before. Yeah, absolutely. We've done a podcast with Emma and Flint about this, but it is is important because a lot of people have sugar cravings don't they when their estrogen levels are low they do and it's very easy when you're feeling tired and fed up and low and miserable to just reach for some junk food or something with high in sugar but that actually can make it worse can't definitely it? so sugary foods highly processed foods can make it worse and alcohol caffeine everybody's different mm. but these things tend not to help i mean alcohol can cause you know hormonal fluctuations anyway and if you're already sensitive that can make it a lot worse the reason I think that a lot of the plant-based whole foods, so, you know, lots of bright fruits and, and veggies and things like that, lentils, beans and stuff, they're inherently anti-inflammatory. So that might be another way in which they can kind of help with the symptoms because women with PMDD have been shown to have slightly raised inflammatory markers. Again, you'd need particularly sensitive tests. So this isn't something you can necessarily go and ask your GP mm. for. But in studies, they've been shown to have that. So that may be a mechanism whereby, you know, focusing your diet around a high fiber diet and, you know, vegetable rich diet is going to be beneficial. And also a high fiber diet kind of helps with excretions of estrogen and you know, metabolites, which um, helps hopefully minimize hormonal fluctuations. That's another way it can be helpful. Things like yoga, stress management are really important because as we said earlier everything's kind of linked and so the more Mm. stressed you're feeling about your symptoms the worse your symptoms are likely to be and vice versa so 
things like that can be really helpful. But obviously, if you're very symptomatic and you and as you say, you're having cravings and you're struggling, a lot of women actually struggle to make the lifestyle changes they need. And that's probably mm. pretty similar to menopause. If you're feeling really low, unmotivated, anxious, it's really hard to think, oh, gosh, do you know what? So I'm going to do half an hour of yoga today and then I'm yes. going to make myself a green smoothie and... It's sometimes you're just not able to do that. And I don't think people should judge themselves for that. So there are, um, going down the treatment guidelines and stuff, there there are certain supplements that can help. There's some evidence for magnesium, some for vitamin B6. So I do often recommend a B vitamin complex for women. There's some evidence that magnesium and B6 can affect the way that your receptors respond to the hormone changes in the brain. There's some evidence for vitamin D and calcium, particularly if, if menstrual migraine is accompanying those symptoms as well. Agnes castus is a herbal remedy. In trials, that's the only one really of the complementary therapists that really shows any kind of evidence. But again, we don't really have a good standardised dose preparation in this country and you can't take it alongside hormonal treatments. But sometimes women would like to try that and that can help counselling CBT can help but I think that's more from my point of view that's probably more just to do with recognising that you're going to have this response and kind of moderating your stress response rather than actually changing underlying things there and then you kind of get into the treatments for moderate to severe premenstrual disorders and so you either look at the psychological therapy support or hormonal support Interestingly, there's evidence that certain types of antidepressants, SSRIs, can positively affect women with the severe form of premenstrual disorder. So things like sertraline or citalopram, so things that we often give for depression, they seem to work in a different way for premenstrual disorders. They seem to affect the way that your brain responds to those hormonal changes again. In particular, there's a receptor in the brain called GABA receptor, which responds to the breakdown products of progesterone. In women who don't have PMDD, the breakdown products, particularly allopregnanolone, often makes women feel kind of maybe calmer, less anxious, and can have a kind of anaesthetic effect. So, you know, it can reduce kind of pain reducing chemicals and stuff there. In women with PMDD, it seems to have the opposite response as well. But the interesting thing is that the SSRI seem to affect the way GABA responds to the breakdown products of that. And that might be how it works. We're not sure. We know it works in a different way to the way antidepressants work in depression because results can be seen often within hours to days. And you sometimes only need to take it for the two weeks before your period which is interesting because you certainly wouldn't take it like that for depression. And I think some women think they're being fobbed off if they're told to try SSRIs for PMS or PMDD, but there is a good scientific basis for that, although we don't Mm. fully understand how it works. We also think it obviously affects the serotonin. There are interactions between estrogen, serotonin, and other neurotransmitters. So that's one thing. So you can either treat those SSRIs all the way through the month or just in the luteal phase the two weeks before. And then there's the attempting to suppress ovulation, which then hopefully calms down your your hormonal fluctuations. And that's the hormonal route. So there's either some contraceptive pills in women who still need contraception. And they generally ones that contain a progesterone called drospirinone. They can be very effective for women. And the other form, especially good in perimenopause, is essentially a similar treatment regime to ones you will use in perimenopause. So a natural progesterone or the marina coil with um, high doses of transdermal estrogen, so gels or patches. Mm. Unfortunately, the trials for that aren't as encouraging as you'd like. It's only if you can 
switch off ovulation and so you often the levels have to be quite high of the estrogen but in some women especially if their symptoms are worse during perimenopause that can make a big difference yeah absolutely I mean I as a GP when I was trained to give women antidepressants just in the second half of the cycle and some women do report like you say very quickly a good response but others find that it doesn't affect them in the same way and increasingly because as you know people who have PMS often have worse PMS during the perimenopause Mm. I often do give them some gel usually the estrogen gel that they just rub onto their skin and I often start with quite a low dose to almost top up the deficit and they often find that it really improves because it's just replacing the hormones that are there. Women who are still having very regular periods there's a debate whether they still need to have a progesterone when their periods are regular because they're still producing their own progesterone but the guidance say that we should be giving a progesterone but some women do have side effects to the progesterone and I think this is why it's very important that women receive individualized help and guidance because everyone's different aren't they and um, you know I think some women need a lot of treatments and like you say sometimes very high doses or a combination of treatments as well and some women even have drugs don't they to block their hormones and consider having um, their ovaries removed often with adback hormones but everyone's different and you know I think like you saying giving a holistic approach is very important as well because as doctors we can be very quick to just prescribe something and it's not just a prescription is it it's very important that women have time to understand their symptoms and also understand how their lifestyle can have a big impact as well definitely I think their individuality is the key I mean there are lots Mm. of people who over the years have said they found the cure for PMS or PMDD um, Mm. or perhaps not so much PMDD because it's a relatively new kind of term over the last few years but um, certainly there was a lady called Katerina Dalton who swore that progesterone was the answer for PMS including severe PMS and in her experience she had quite good results with that and that is certainly there are some women who used to be given natural progesterone after postnatal depression Mm. and that would help and I Mm. I do occasionally see that in practice and sometimes those women respond positively to the progesterone Mm. but a lot of women as you've kind of alluded to with PMS really have almost an intolerance Mm. to their own progesterone that they produce Mm. and giving it back to them in the hormone therapy can be problematic so these are the women where it isn't going to be so helpful giving them the contraceptive pill mm. or HRT with the progesterone component. And we have to then consider if they're another route, they can have the progesterone. Maybe having vaginal progesterone can sometimes mm. minimise side effects or the marina coil because it's an overall lower dose of hormone. But even that is too much for some people. Mm. And as you say, sometimes you resort to going down the route of, of trying to switch off the ovaries with what we call GNRH analogues. And that's really with a view to having surgery to remove the uterus and the ovaries but that's really only reserved for for severe cases mm. and obviously I unfortunately ended up in that group but yeah. um it's not something I would advocate for unless it's absolutely necessary because ultimately it's not a problem with your ovaries or your uterus mm. it's a problem with our brain's response to the hormone changes and yes. so I'm hoping in years to come we're not going to remove part of the endocrine system of young women which is what we still do But sometimes it is necessary for certain people if they're unable Mm. to get on top of their symptoms. And this is obviously the very severe and most women won't need to have that. Most women will manage, you know, to find something that suits them with a combination of lifestyle treatment, possibly hormonal treatments, maybe sometimes with a low dose SSRI, which again can sometimes 
help the HRT work a little bit better, but it's so individual. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's so important in, in everything we do, not just with menopause or hormones, but if a person has any illness, it's very important. But I think it's also important that if anyone's listening and is struggling and perhaps not receiving the, the right care that they expect, then they should seek a second opinion because, you know, the training that we have as doctors in conditions such as PMS and PMDD is very limited. And so it's important to try and work towards the best evidence and, and get the right help because a lot of women are very scared, aren't they? They feel that they think they are depressed or they've got dementia because they can't think properly or they've got arthritis because they keep getting joint pains or they have urinary symptoms and it's not until someone sits down and works out that they happen in a cyclical way and that they probably are related to their hormones a lot of women are just relieved knowing that there's a reason for them to feel like that so it's very important so we could talk about this all day and um, (laughs) it's still so much more to know and understand but I hope that's given people some basic understanding about the reasons behind this complicated condition and treatment choices so thank you ever so much for your time but before we finish Hannah do you mind just giving three take-home tips so for women who think they might be having some symptoms related to PMS and what are the three main things that you would suggest that they could do to help themselves? I think the first thing to do is kind of track your symptoms. And so as I mentioned, there are certain apps you can download for that or kind of going to one of the websites I mentioned to downloadable printable tracker. And looking at good resources, so there's iapmd.org, which is actually a US-based site, but there's a lot of there's lots of good information on this. Primarily, their focus is on in the severe form, so PMDD and, and suicidal behaviour related to hormone fluctuations. Have a look on there because they've got a question and answer section. They've got all the evidence and stuff on there. Or there's NAPS over here, the National Association of Premenstrual Syndrome. So there's some information and, and the UK guidelines on there. The other thing is kind of to be kind to yourself. I think there's a lot of judgment that people feel that they should just be able to solve this by themselves as though it's their fault. And although there is some talk that stress and trauma is related to PMS and PMDD, even if that's the case, it's not as though it's your fault or your choice. Um, trying to think of the way to kind of describe that properly, but it's I think because it's such a complex disorder and it's so poorly understood, there's just a lot of self-blame and that doesn't help anybody. There is help out there. We're learning more and more about it all of the time. I think, yes, be kind to yourself, know that there is help, but tracking your symptoms is key and just getting the right places for support. Yeah, no, that's really important, really invaluable advice. Um, So thank you ever so much for spending some time to explain that, Hannah. It's been really good. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the menopause, please visit our website www.menopausedoctor.co.uk.